I'm Sharon Burke, Director of Resource Security at New America, and this is Heatmap, a podcast about climate change in America. We've been talking to people all over the country who get it done about what they're doing. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the Midwest. Now, this is the swath of land from North Dakota to Nebraska, where the Rust Belt meets the Grain Belt, as one of the people we spoke to said. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Jesse Carbonda. Jesse is executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, an Indiana-based environmental advocacy and education nonprofit. Welcome, Jesse. So tell us a little bit about your group. Great to be with you, Sharon. Well, I've been uh, leading the Hoosier Environmental Council for about 13 years, and Hoosier Environmental Council is a statewide public interest organization that works in three arenas. We work to advance environmental health, protect land and water, and to pursue climate solutions. Okay, great. So before we dig in, I'm going to just set the table a little bit with some of the work that we've been doing. So As I said, we've been interviewing people all over the region about how they're dealing with climate change, including we talked to you, of course, that's why we're talking now. And, you know, one of the things that's clear is that the Midwest is famous for farms and rightly so. It's it's an important part of the food supply chain here at home and also, you know, a global breadbasket, particularly when it comes to grains. It's it's one of the most important suppliers in the world. Now, California is still the, the biggest agricultural state in the country, but seven of the next 10 are all in the Midwest. So it's a really important part of the country for food security. It's also a big manufacturing area. Most of the cars that are produced in the United States are produced somewhere in this region. And no surprise, it's also a big greenhouse gas emitting area. About about a quarter of the nation's greenhouse gases come from this part of the country. So the Trump administration's National Climate Assessment, which came out in 2018, says the region's also going to experience and already is experiencing extreme heat, humidity, soil erosion, rainfall, flooding, possible declines in crop yields, and extreme weather. And of course, we've already seen some extreme weather across the region, including most recently the derecho in Iowa, which was really terrible. So one of the people we talked to was Rolf Nordstrom, who's the CEO for the Great Plains Institute that's based up in Minneapolis. And uh, we want to play a quote from him now and, and chat with you about what he had to say. The center out concept, I mean, it may not even be novel, but, and of course, we're a little bit biased because we're based in the middle of the country. But I guess to put it bluntly, our observation is that the United States is not losing the climate conversation on the coasts. It's not, it's not recalcitrant New York and San Francisco. So that's sort of the essence of this observation about a, the need for a center out climate strategy. And we think of it as really a, both a climate and an economic recovery strategy in the current environment. And of course, you all know, I mean, there's no single reason why this country still has no comprehensive climate policy, despite decades of effort, I would point out, uh, and of course, mounting scientific evidence about the issue's urgency. But, you know, one of the reasons that previous attempts at federal climate policy have faltered, we think, is in part anyway, because we haven't managed to galvanize the middle of the country. And by middle, I'm thinking about from farmers to coal-intensive utilities to states that have fossil resources and lots of jobs tied to those that have, you know, at least until quite recently, seen climate policy as an existential threat. So even though, you know, the climate ambition on the coasts is important and influential, but by itself has not been enough to translate into national progress on this issue. Well, uh, the political structure in the economy of the Midwest are very different from the coasts. And and you've spoken to that, Sharon, in terms of 
the fact that we are an agricultural and manufacturing dominated area and the practical implication raised by people who are thinking about public policy is somehow climate policy will translate into higher energy prices, which mean higher fertilizer costs, which mean less profits for farmers and higher energy costs means less profits for industrial companies. Uh, so that's kind of the logic for why uh, the Midwest seems like a harder place to advance climate action. But the interesting thing about it is that we're also positioned to be a global leader in advancing climate solutions for precisely because of the fact that we have a strong agricultural and manufacturing heritage. Yeah, we did. We talked to one farmer in uh, Nebraska, Dan Hughes, who also happens to be a state senator, who was very quick to say, I'm doing things on my farm that are good for the environment, but that's because they're good for my farm and my bottom line and for the environment, which I really care about, but it's not because of climate change. And this was like no-till and other carbon sequestration. So do you think, is that common? Do you see that a lot in your work, that people are willing to do things for climate change, but they have to be bundled as being about, as you said, you know, productivity and jobs and, you know, what's good for the farm? Yeah, I mean, I think that... uh... My perception is that, you know, there's a lot of practical minded thinking, and I mean that in a very respectful way in in how both policymakers think and how business people think. And and in in other words, I wish research had more import here, but in all my years working in the Indiana legislature, what matters most is seeing, kicking the tires directly. So in the case of that farmer, Uh, You know, he's experimenting with cover cropping and no-till and so forth and realizing that it increases uh, soil productivity and thereby improves crop yields and so forth like that. So I think you're right, Sharon, that bundling is important. I think that our view is whatever it takes to decarbonize the state is critical and that the message matters and the messenger matters. So... For example, we might make the case to energy efficiency to a Republican based on the fact that it will simply reduce energy costs for businesses in the state and make the state more competitive in this fierce economic climate. But maybe to a liberal lawmaker, we may well talk about climate change and how how energy efficiency is the lowest cost approach to decarbonization. And that works. Yeah. You make progress with both with both camps. By doing Absolutely. That. I, I almost feel like that the approach to advocacy, particularly in the area of climate, I mean, I think advocacy in general is all about good psychology, but I think that one needs to amp up the game in terms of psychology when it comes to climate, because it is a topic, as you and I talked about before, where words can have very strong associations in the minds of one lawmaker versus the other. And, you know, climate change we would like to think, okay, this is an objective term, but if heard by a certain type of conservative lawmaker, the immediate association might be big government, tax and spend, so on and so forth. And and so for them, as you rightly pointed out, it's all about thinking, describing this issue in terms of very practical repercussions on how climate change is going to affect their county and really talk more about the reality of more extreme flooding and the reality of more likelihood of droughts as precipitation goes out of whack. 
you said the messenger matters too. Are there like what kind of, what kind of messengers in the Midwest work and which messengers don't work? Well, uh, you know, it, it again really it's really going to vary, uh, Sharon. I mean, it's interesting that for many years there could be no conversation about climate change in the legislature among the supermajority because again of this tight linking between climate change and big government. And of course, that's uh, against the creed of the conservatives who dominate Indiana. But what's interesting is just literally this last session in 2020, right before the pandemic hit us, there was a briefing by the Purdue Climate Change Research Center of the Rural Caucus in the General Assembly. And that was a landmark moment because here you had overwhelmingly conservative lawmakers hearing about climate science for the first time. But the messenger wasn't an environmental leader or environmental advocate, no matter how you know, much education we may have. It was by people who are scientists and who are associated with the signature agricultural university in Indiana, Purdue University. And I think that really made a difference. I wonder too if if having business leaders talk makes a difference because we we had conversations with Tom Leinbarger from Cummins, which of course is a major employer for Indiana, and he believes in climate change and he's taken his own company in some pretty progressive directions. And same, you know, talking to folks in St. Louis, Anheuser Busch is very forward leading. So I assume that those messengers too are uh, are more persuasive for a wider range of people. You agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, well, I think uh, maybe to somewhat qualify that point is that it, again, it's all about proper pairing. And so there are certain conservative lawmakers who are going to put their ideological views above even business considerations. And so for them, even a business person may not be the right communicator, the right ambassador of the message. But then for those for whom business considerations are topmost in mind, people who might live in districts with a heavy industrial footprint like Northwest Indiana or Lafayette or Indianapolis or Evansville, there, you know, the, the CEO of Cummins may be the perfect messenger. Uh, but then again, for others, it might be they are really ironclad in not believing in climate change, but then there's a farmer in their district that says, man, crop yields have declined. I'm seeing completely different growing seasons. I'm having to put in a lot more fertilizer because there's a lot more runoff um, because of greater flooding. And that person might be the better messenger. So that all makes sense to me. It's very, you know, brass tacks. And, you know, we, we did talk to uh, the one of the top climate change people in California who said it's not that different here. We, we have to make the same cases to the same kinds of people. Okay, fair enough. But one thing we have heard consistently is that, yeah, but the Midwest is different too, because we have a different culture. You know, we're, we're the down to earth, show me, pragmatic, and very nice and polite. You know, how far does that go? Do you think that that's part of why you need a center out strategy? Because the Midwest really is culturally different from other parts of the country? Well, it, it's an interesting, it's a very important insight that, you know, there are going to be pockets of symmetry between the Midwest and, like I said, even California, where there are strong pockets of conservatism, even in California. But I do think that, you know, this whole notion of a center out strategy makes a lot of sense. And again, I think you're going to have to draw in a far greater cast of characters to move the agenda forward in the Indiana context. For example, 
evangelicals uh, are the most important uh, religious group in Indiana, as far as the largest religious subgroup in Indiana are the evangelicals. And thankfully, there are pastors and people uh, running ministries and, and nonprofits who are talking about the biblical case for climate action. And uh, they're steadily changing the culture of their churches. And that ultimately will affect lawmakers thinking because lawmakers are attending one of those evangelical churches. One of the things I wondered too, with a lot of the conversations we had is, is this, this sort of self-identified culture and Midwestern culture, it doesn't necessarily include everybody, right? So when you look across the region at where the environmental challenges are most likely to be clustered, it's often in cities and it's often in uh, black and, and uh, other people of color communities. And, you know, the region is predominantly white. It's about 76%, according to the census, which is higher than the national average of 60%. But when you get into the cities, it's a different story, you know, everywhere in the Midwest, that cities are much more diverse. And that's also disproportionately where the environmental problems are. So, you know, I wondered if, if also some of this self-identity of the Midwest leaves people out. Right. You know, I think to that end, I guess a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is that we have to do a better job as the environmental community in engaging the Black Caucus, which is a very important and active component of the Indiana General Assembly, and really uh, kind of unpacking with our, our colleagues who run organizations that are very focused on the African-American community to talk about how climate change matters to communities of color. And, you know, it's interesting, it matters both from the dimension of climate adaptation as well as climate mitigation. So one of the things that we're trying to do, along with other groups, is to make sure that communities of color can really benefit from this future uh, low-carbon economy. And so, for example, in Indiana, we became the first state in the United States to phase out net metering, which is a very important public policy to uh, make rooftop solar more affordable. And the phase out really is going to hurt communities of color and low income communities the most. And so there needs to be, and we're actively addressing this, to build a case in the General Assembly for public policy like third party community solar, which is a policy that thrived in other parts of the Midwest, like Minnesota, and then outside of the Midwest in places like Colorado, that again, make rooftop solar a lot more affordable. And when it comes to transit, Indianapolis has the first in the nation all electric bus rapid transit line. So, you know, we can do climate solution innovation here in Indiana. But the concern that's been raised uh, that I've heard from African-American leaders is that while this bus rapid transit was logically cited in a place that has a high density and it has a, a decent percentage of people of color, the vast majority of people of color in Indianapolis live outside of that corridor. And so how do you build a transit system that truly will serve the full breadth of, of communities of color? Uh, another example of kind of making sure that communities of color truly benefit from this low carbon economy of the future is in agriculture. Uh, which is that we need to head as a society towards a plant-based economy because livestock agriculture has such a profound ecological and climate footprint, carbon footprint. And there uh, we have a situation where Indiana has some of the largest food desert problems 
in America, even if we are part, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, Sharon, the breadbasket of the United States, and yet we have these serious pockets of food deserts. So we need to help to foster farmers markets and uh, grocery stores in inner city uh, Indiana. And we heard, you know, in our conversations, one thing that we heard clearly was, and it might be that this would help mitigate the risk of putting a bus line where where it doesn't serve the right people is that some of those, the planning for that has to be from the inside out. You can't just come into the community and say, here, we have a solution for you. You have to go there first and find out what the problems are. We had a great conversation with Lewis Reed, who's the president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, about this and specifically about transit. And you know, he said the same thing, that one of the problems is they're trying to develop more jobs for, for people across St. Louis, um, but they don't have transportation. And that becomes a real barrier. Uh, we want to play a quote from him now and, and chat with you about what he had to say. People need to look at mass transit as not just something that can help the environment, but something that can help equality, right? And, and help lift families out of poverty. We've been working with organized labor to, to attempt to get organized labor to employ more people of color from marginalized communities. Well, part of the challenge is people of color from marginalized community having access to public transit to be able to get to the train. Right. So that's why when you look at a lot of climate change issues, a lot of sustainability issues, we also need to talk about social economic justice also, because it all plays together and it's all one subject matter. Uh, well, we need to advance uh, economic and social justice along with climate justice. But I think that it really requires kind of a, a pretty sophisticated political strategy to actually actualize that, given the composition of the Indiana General Assembly. I mean, just to provide perspective to your listeners, we have the highest supermajority in the Indiana House in more than 40 years, and the highest supermajority in the Senate in about 60 years. And so, uh, you know, when we're talking about things like economic and social justice, it's, you know, it's one thing to a uh, define it, b flesh out what public policies ought to be associated, and then c to get it done and get it to become law. And that's that that third piece that we really just need to be creative in building the kind of coalitions that can achieve it. So, for example, criminal justice reform is a great example to me that provides me great hope that even in conservative political context, you can achieve landmark change, right? Because it involved historically liberal uh, nonprofits who, you know, been beating the drama about how unjust sentencing is and so forth. And then communities of faith, oftentimes very conservative communities of faith, recognizing that we're doing a great injustice to people who are in prison and that it's, again, contrary to, say, biblical teachings. And these very distinct ideological groups are coming together and have helped to effectuate serious criminal justice reform in Indiana. So that, to me, that kind of serves as a template or at least an inspiration for the grand coalition that is absolutely essential to pass meaningful climate policy in Indiana and across the Midwest. So you think it's possible? You, you, you remain optimistic that you can bring together that kind of grand coalition? Yes, absolutely. And again, it, it really requires this attitude of a marathon that to pass a landmark legislation in the state requires a marathon mindset. And I'll give you a concrete example, Sharon. I mean, mass transit has unfortunately not 
garnered the bipartisan support that it should historically, even if you know mass transit, in addition to being very important to moving communities of color around, are also very important to elderly populations. And Indiana will reach a point where its elderly population will be the largest age group in Indiana. And that group will largely be in areas that are represented by conservatives. And yet, for many years, there's been real resistance to passing mass transit legislation. Well, after about a five-year effort, a conservative-dominated House in the Senate did pass landmark reform in Indiana. And it happened because of this grand coalition. So I get what you're saying, you know, that there's no substitute for hard work, that getting this kind of change to really happen, it just, it's a slog, right? It just takes a while. You got to work with a lot of people and get it done. But I wonder, you know, at the same time, we're kind of running out of time, right? The UN has said we've got about, what, 12 years to really cut greenhouse gas emissions in order to avoid the very worst effects of climate change. So how do we square that, that it takes painstaking work and a lot of coalition building to actually make this kind of change happen with, oh my God, we're running out of time? I completely agree. And I think there are two thoughts to come to mind there. One is just the recognition that there is hope in the private sector effectuating a lot of change as it is. And then I'll speak to public policy. So with respect to private enterprise, it's surprising that a state that has a reputation of being very conservative, Indiana, has been a real climate innovator in many different ways. Maybe people won't necessarily use the word climate label, but it's there. So we are a national leader in cover cropping. 950,000 acres in Indiana have cover crops. That's over about 15 million acres of farmland. And can you explain what cover cropping is and why it matters? Absolutely. Uh, Cover cropping refers to some kind of, of crop that essentially is grown at times when your main crops like corn and beans are not grown. And it helps to retain soil and water. And of course, that not only reduces the impact of flooding, which therefore reduces the sort of pain um, that, that farmers would feel in the event of flooding, but it also improves soil productivity and increases crop yield. And it also retains more carbon. Uh, so it's like a, it's a beautiful carbon strategy in, in the agricultural context. And almost one in 15 acres in Indiana are cover cropped. And so that's you know, an example of entrepreneurs, farmers, getting it done and enacting a climate solution at scale. Uh, another couple of concrete examples that come to mind is just that because, and this goes back to an earlier point I made in, our, in the podcast here, is that Indiana is a manufacturing giant. In fact, there's no state more dependent on manufacturing in America than Indiana, more than Michigan, more than Ohio. I did not know that. Yes. And what's interesting, Sharon, is that we're also have some manufacturing giants that are are innovators in decarbonizing the RV industry of the world. I mean, in other words, the, the epicenter of the RV industry is in Indiana. It's in the Elkhart area of Indiana, and they are building a hybrid RV. And I bet they're one of the few industries that's that's really benefited in this in the pandemic. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then, you know, Fort Wayne has one of the largest geothermal manufacturers in the country. Columbus, as you alluded to, they're trying to build engines that will have 70 or 80% lower carbon footprint. Allison Transmission in Indianapolis is building 
hybrid electric uh, propulsion systems. In Shelbyville, they have one of the largest insulation companies in the world. And of course, insulation is a critical climate strategy in terms of uh, helping to uh, reduce the energy footprint of homes. So there is innovation happening in decarbonization because of Indiana's tax and regulatory environment in general. But to the question of public policy, which we can't sidestep, and that's a critical point to make because I think there's this perception that there, because there are climate innovators in the private enterprise area, that alone will be sufficient. But I think to your point, given just the hill we have to climb, the mountain we have to climb to decarbonize this country really requires public policy. And I think that is a responsibility on groups like us. One of the themes of my leadership over these 12, almost 13 years leading Hoosier Environmental Council is bridge building, because you can't forge big change unless you have, again, grand coalitions. And so we have great relationships with people across kind of professional areas. So part of our responsibility is to talk to our friends in the farming community and say, please not just tout that you are installing cover cropping and uh, no-till, but talk to your lawmaker about how we can revise the incentive program in the state that more farmers can adopt it. Okay, so you've got this grand coalition delicate balance worked out. You're trying to push the pace. So my last question for you is, if you had a chance to get face-to-face with the next president, and we'll give you two scenarios, (laughs) what would you say as far as what's going to help you? Um, so you got one president who has said he doesn't think it's the federal government's role to act on climate change, one candidate, and one candidate who has a very ambitious plan for federal action. So what do you say? What do you say to these candidates? What's going to help you and help Indiana? If you had a chance to say, do this or don't do that, what would you say? Yes. Um, hmm. uh, well, I think that the bully pulpit matters. Uh, we've seen that, for example, in the context of the pandemic. If the current office holder of the White House talked consistently about masking and social distancing, consistently, 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 no ambiguity, no contradictions, that would have had profound implications on uh, the number of cases and deaths that we have in the country. And I think that matters when it comes to climate action too. If the future president, whether it's reelected or a new president, makes an address from the Oval Office and says, this is a crisis, this impacts every part of the country, and yet the hopeful message is that we can actually be the global leader in this, and this will create tens of millions of jobs, and here's a three-point plan to make that happen. That's the kind of message that we ought to have from the next office holder that would benefit Indiana and across the country. All right. Well, hopefully your message will be heard and delivered. (laughs) So, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us and for all the work you're doing. You know, it's one thing to talk about being committed to climate change or, you know, wanting things to change. And it's another thing to talk to someone who's actually out there trying day by day to do all the hard work to make it done. So thank you for what you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us about it. It was a great pleasure, Sharon. There's so many partners to thank who, together with Hoosier Environmental Council, make uh, positive change possible in Indiana. I really appreciate uh, talking to you today. And that was today's episode of Heatmap. This is a production of the Resource Security Team at New America. I'm Sharon Burke, and Wyatt Scott and Callie Oburn are the research team, with Jason Stewart and Shannon Lynch leading production and engineering. Find us at newamerica.org slash resource dash security.